Hey y'all, it's Matt here coming at you from the uh, corner of my house where I always record. Hey, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's coming up here. So we're doing this episode uh, with Doctor Who the 10th Planet, a first Doctor episode. Of course, this takes place in the 60s. I mean, well, was recorded in the 60s, was made in the 60s, so it kind of fits into uh, what we've been talking about, about pop culture of the time of Star Trek. Then next week, we're going to be doing Thunderball, uh, a James Bond movie, also very important to pop culture of the 60s. And then after that, boom, we'll be right into season two of the show. So please stick around. I hope you're kind of enjoying these deviations as we talk about uh, the importance of other shows other movies, uh, the pop culture of the time, and what that means for Star Trek, and uh, why it's uh, also important to see why Star Trek stands out. That's really the, one of the big things, especially when it comes to uh, comparing it to Doctor Who, which we get into a little bit in this episode. Also, for those of you who are paying attention to current pop culture events, we just recently had our uh, new season of Doctor Who start with the first female Doctor. I thought it was amazing. I thought she's going to be a great Doctor. She sort of has that effervescent energy that Matt Smith and David Tennant has. I think she's a great addition to uh, the legend that has been Doctor Who over the last 50 years, you know, that it's been around. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope for those of you who are Doctor Who fans, you... uh, Enjoy this as well, and as always, uh, join us for the uh, for the show when we come back and start doing season two. Uh, also, real quick, we know that um, Discovery is going to be starting uh, in early January, so the little short treks that they've been doing, we're going to do all of those in one big episode as a lead-up into Discovery, and then, of course, as Discovery airs, we're going to be uh, pumping out the podcast just like we always have been, so make sure you are watching those because Discovery's... Season one was amazing, and I can't wait to get into season two with Spock and Pike and all of those really cool things that are going to be happening, especially we know Pike, right? We might also be seeing the return of Mud, which is funny because I think that we're going to be hitting iMud in season two just about the same time that uh, season two of Discovery starts, so it'll be kind of fun to compare and contrast those two figures as well. Well, that'll do it for me right here, right now. We're going to jump into the show. It's going to be a lot of fun, I promise. A lot of fun talking about Doctor Who. to another side-by-side episode of The Brothers Trek About. As you can see, we are here in Austin together, so hey, enjoy. It's going to be fun. As always, this is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. There you go. Well, so what we decided to do this week was <clears throat> was something just a little bit different than what we normally do. We wanted to hit other points of pop culture that were relevant at the same time as Trek, to sort of, you know, give you an idea of what the pop cultural landscape was at the time. <clears throat> you know, because, especially, looking at Star Trek in comparison to even other things that were on TV, uh, especially some long-running shows like Doctor Who, 
uh, that were happening at the same time in 1966. It's, it's pretty spectacular how it stands up now, but you can't imagine how much it was blowing people's minds back then. So I thought it was worth taking the time out to, to hit it. Talk about Doctor Who, because I really think, as again, it's a show that's been around for 50 years that's still culturally relevant. Why don't we see what Doctor Who was doing at the same time as uh, as we are, or uh, as uh, we're hitting here in Star Trek. And see what opportunities we have to relate it to Star Trek. Yes. Yeah, because especially in this episode, the 10th planet, which is the one we'll be talking about today, uh, there's a couple of things that really hit almost note for note on this episode. So... So, you know, uh, Doctor Who started in 1963. Uh, It uh, actually premiered the same day that uh, John F. Kennedy was shot. Again, just for the sake of bringing things to the time. The the Kennedy assassination was one of those big things that really, like... was one of those big moments in history, right? So, you know, nowadays somebody will ask you, well, hey, where were you when 9-11 happened, right? Well, that was the 9-11 of, you know, the 60s and the 70s. That was the big cultural moment that everybody remembers where they were when it happened. Uh, you know, it was one of those shocking things. Uh, everybody heard about it. And a few days later, everybody saw, you know, uh, Jack Ruby shoot Oswald on live TV. You know, Dennis Leary jokingly referred to that as the moment that everyone didn't stop watching TV from then on. That was it. Well, somebody might get shot. We might see it on TV. <laughs> You know, so we got this show that uh, is very different, even in in all of pop culture at this time, but especially in England. This grumpy old man with his uh, weird daughter, the the they the two teachers of the time who just happened to be a science teacher and a history teacher. Gee, how lucky! Uh, follow young Susan home one day to a graveyard, or not a graveyard, a junkyard. Uh, find that they're living in this police box, which you know is like this little what six by six box or something you know so they go and knock on the door and they get let in and suddenly it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside and sure enough our adventure begins with the uh with the folks on the tardis there a few episodes later they're meeting aztecs you know a season later they're meeting the the greeks you know uh verity lambert who was one of the uh who was the uh big producer on it at the time also a big thing because she was one of the first female producers in the BBC, especially given such a show that nobody knew if it was going to work. Uh, but one of her ideas was she wanted to make it for kids. You know, she wanted to make it about history. She wanted to make it, you know, something that kids could watch with their folks during tea time. Well, let's sit down, we'll watch TV. Yeah, we'll watch this crazy thing that's happening. And it took off like gangbusters. Like, you know, the first few episodes, they did fairly well. And then after the first two episodes... Which, by the way, then were like 22-minute segments. So you had big story arcs like, uh, you know, what we'll be doing, The Tenth Planet, which was four episodes. But they were 22-little-minute episodes. So that's how they did it back then. But so two episodes later, we'd get the Daleks, which, you know, everybody, you know, even people who don't know what Doctor Who is know what the Daleks are. They they had a seven-episode run, and it just scared the bejesus out of kids. So then the BBC learned, hey, if we can have a show that scares kids as well, uh, you know, they started calling them, you know, hide behind the couch moments. And so uh, it was, it, that also became something that they were sort of hunting down and trying to discover as this, epi- or as this TV show was developing. 
So again, we got, uh, you know, so they had these Aztec adventures. We go on these spacey adventures with these aliens. We're going into the future. We're going into the past. So for the past, we have our history teacher and Barbara, who's there. For all of our science stuff, we have, you know, uh, Ian Chesterson, who is, you know, can fill us in. Can You know, he's kind of like the... Uh, well, I was going to say Spock, but he's not even really Spock. Because Spock gives it to him. But then, like, for Bones' benefit, Kirk will, like, break down something scientific, right? So that's basically what his job was. His job was to, you know, take something crazy that the doctor was saying. And then Barbara would go, what? And Ian would be like, well, actually, it's a thing that, you know, Earth scientists have been working on to blah, 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 blah. Quite ridiculously. Mr. Exposition. Mr. Exposition, Exactly. Uh, so this is also another big difference that was done in just the filming of this episode is we've been talking about for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. There's 30 of those weeks. So on Star Trek, they would they uh, they would film these over six, seven days. We they'd have uh, one camera. They'd take a shot of, you know, the whole crew doing their thing. OK, now let's cut back in. We'll do a couple of like two person shots where we got Sulu at the helm and funny face and then Kirk you know, sitting in his big chair. Okay, now let's do the close-up shots of everybody, and all right, that, that scene's in the can, let's move on. Well, Doctor Who was very, very different, because what they would do is they would take the script, they would block it over the course of the week, the sets would be built, the costumes would be built, but then on a Friday night, they'd take two, two and a half hours to shoot it. And then they'd basically shoot it live. Kind of like a play, but they're using three cameras to try and pick up everything on the fly. So even though like sitcoms today use the three camera system, they weren't back then good enough to catch everything that they needed. But not only that, they didn't have the money to go back and re-record things. So there's a lot of flubs. There's a lot of times the camera didn't even pick up what they were trying to do. So they would take those takes put them together with the special effects or anything else that they had to do, uh, put the scenes together, and then literally a week later it would air on TV. In the 60s especially, when you've got an older gentleman like William Hartnell, who's, you know, doesn't... He's just an older guy, you know? He's been doing this for a long time. Sometimes his lines don't come out exactly right. But, you know, they didn't stop and go, hold on, let's back up and pick it up again. They just let it roll, you know? And because they just... They had so little money compared to what you know, Trek had. If they had Trek's budget, God knows what they would have been doing. <laughs> but uh, they didn't. So literally on a Friday night, they'd take two uh, two hours, shoot the whole thing, and then that would be it. Boom, we move on. Uh, which will lead us into something that happens in episode three of this week, but we'll talk about that when we get there. So, you know, looking at a, at an episode of Star or of Doctor Who, like we just did, uh, Ken just watched it for the first time. I've been taking notes on it all week. But, you know, it's interesting how... It feels a little more live, but also you. It happened a couple of times, especially in episode like th uh, two, where you hear the girl scream. They cut to the girl after she's already screamed, and then we hear something happening in the next room. They cut back to the next room, and whatever it is has already happened. Doesn't matter. We're going on. We're gonna keep moving. You know, it's like they don't even stop and fix it when, uh, whenever even the cuts get wrong, which I thought was really interesting. So, William Hartnell, as I was discussing, he was the first doctor. He was the, the older gentleman with the white hair. He, too, had a scarf. It just wasn't as long as Tom Baker's. Uh, he I think was, he's more associated with that hat. Yeah. Which he wore in this episode because it was cold outside. Yeah. So, uh, uh, he was a, a curmudgingly character. Something interesting about the doctor, especially in these super early episodes, 
really didn't care about whatever was happening. You know, there's one, you know, a scene in the Aztecs where he almost kills one of the Aztecs and you're like, well, that's so on Doctor Who like, but it's because he was more worried about the safety of him and his granddaughter. I don't even think he really cared necessarily sometimes about Barbara and Ian, <laughs> but so it's a very different take on the doctor, which is kind of interesting when you look back at it through the eyes of those of us who have watched the series all, all because he's a younger guy, right? You know, by the time you get to Tom Baker and, way into like David Tennant, you know, he's 700, 900 years old. So you've got this very young guy who's like, I only care about me because I don't know any better and blah, 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 even though he's probably 200 years old by the time we see him in an unearthly child. So it's a very different take on the Doctor, which I thought is interesting. But Hartnell himself was also notoriously curmudgeonly. A lot of the, you know, stuff we hear about Picard, or I mean uh, Patrick Stewart in the first season about him like, let's just work, we've got to do this work and, you know, stop with the silliness and blah blah blah, all of that stuff, was very true to Hartnell. He was taking everything very seriously, almost too seriously sometimes. But also, too, he was almost he was compensating because he had to concentrate really hard to remember the words. So there's a lot of that, too, that he was dealing with at the time of just like Please don't break my concentration. You know, I was listening to part of the uh, uh, commentary. Thank you. That uh, was in this episode, and in the commentary, they even said that there was a ping pong table in the next room, but they weren't allowed to play it because Hartnell was like, you know, too busy trying to remember his thing. So, by this third season, which is what we're in now, as far as the tenth planet goes, by the third season. Um, they decided like Hartnell couldn't keep it going. The show was doing really well. So what do we do to keep the show going? So one of the original ideas was like, well, we'll just get somebody else who looks like William Hartnell and he'll just take over the role. But then they decided, well, we could... So this guy, Ennis Lloyd, was like, you know, we could really do something cool here. What if we made it a slightly younger guy, but somebody who was unusual as well and, you know, was really had... But was different. Was the same, but different. They decided, uh, right at the beginning of the filming of this season, they decided to bring in Patrick Troughton. And William Hartnell, uh, you know, famously said, well, no one else could be, do it, but, you know, could, could fill my shoes, but Patrick Troughton, who at the time was a very well-known character actor and was, you know, super respected in the industry. So uh, they had other choices for the second Doctor, but he was always number the first choice. So, you know, another thing, too, that was a big cultural moment that was happening in the 60s was the space race, right? Uh, you're probably better at the history on the space race. I'll let you handle that a little bit. When did like what? It, so, we spent our we sent our first guy into space in like the fifties, right, John Glenn? Yeah, very end of the fifties, beginning of the sixties. We we're we we're putting guys in orbit. The Russians are first with Yuri Gagarin, right? And they sent a monkey up first too, right? But a dog starts. Oh, a dog. Yeah, and then a monkey. I think we sent the monkey. They sent the dog. Oh, okay, fair. We so, thought uh, something in the primate family would be a better representation of a human. So now it's a battle between, because everything in the 50s and 60s, for those who don't know, who don't know their history well enough, everything in the 50s and 60s was a race between Russia, the communists, and America, you know, the patriotic democrats, I don't know what to call them. The capitalists, maybe? You know, the Americans, us of our free will and, and whatnot. So everything was a race there. The arms, you know, arms race. Who's got? Who's going to have more missiles? Who's going to be able to blow each other up better? Uh, you know, everything. Uh, who's who, going to become bigger? Who has the better system, the better society? Who right. makes the better kitchen? So you, in 56, you famously had Khrushchev and Nixon debating in the kitchen debates. Like, who's, you know, they tour what was basically a, 
a World's Fair kind of a thing, looking at what does the American kitchen look like? What does right. the Russian kitchen look like? And of course, the Americans get to, you know, we've got toasters that pop up. We've got the refrigerator with the icebox attached. This kind of stuff. And then the, the Russians have their technology in which they get to propose their kitchens. And you, everything is a competition because you're ultimately arguing for the totality of the system. Right. So who's got the better, uh, yeah, the better life? So by that point, we've sent people up. Nobody's hit the moon yet because we don't hit the moon till 69, right? Okay. And uh, I thought I knew my stuff. And uh, But until then, every, we're, we're constantly sending people up into space. This is the Apollo program that we're basically hitting at this point, right? Yeah, the, the Apollo is to get to the moon. Before yes. that, we've got Mercury and Gemini. Okay, so there you go. So the space race, that's another big thing, which is a, a super important thing to know going into this episode as well. I think it hits on the space race uh, a whole bunch. So why did I like Doctor Who? This is the one thing I've been trying to like figure out for the last few days. Uh, you know, our PBS station in Chicago, WTTW, still around, uh, used to show... Well, they used to show Doctor Who in the afternoon. It used to come on at like 5.30, 6 o'clock. It was like literally the same time they showed in London. But it was on every day. And it was like, it was like 321 Contact was on. And then after 321 Contact would be Doctor Who. And it was Tom Baker. And I was... Like, I remember like sitting through those episodes or watching parts of them while doing other things. But I never really got onto it until Sunday nights we'd have Monty Python and then we'd have uh, Dave Allen at large and then and then they would go to Doctor Who and they would show not just the 22-minute episodes at this point but they would show the entire episodes all like pieced together. So you'd have in it the entire episode of The Hand of Fear or, or something like that. So it was these long, giant episodes they'd have uh, all stitched together and so we started recording those and we started watching them all the time and then that was it. Like I was just pretty much hooked. What hooked me? Probably the idea of time travel. That's always been a thing that I've liked. I remember in fifth grade, I took the, the idea of, oh, it must have not have been fifth grade. Well, yeah, fifth grade, I broke down all the different parallel universes created in Back to the Future because he goes back and he changes time and blah, blah, blah. And then many years later, I would go back and do all of the movies because then going back to 1888 starts a whole like craziness. But... I think the first movie ended up breaking down into like 12, and then I think after after the third movie, it was something like three times that, or something like 36 or 48. Anyway, there you go. So I, I, I think that had a lot to do with my love for Doctor Who. Uh, that, which also stemming from Doctor Who, got me into Monty Python, and also into, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all those crazy British things. So certainly there's an angle file coming on, uh, on uh, from me. So when it comes to watching this episode, there are pieces of it on YouTube. You can find it and take a look at it to sort of get the idea of it. Uh, there's this new service out called BritBox now, which is really cool. Um, and they're doing free first months. So if you want to check out some Doctor Who, go to BritBox, check it out. Uh, watch all your Monty Pythons and uh, everything else that you could possibly watch that BBC is putting, uh, the BBC has put out over the years. Also, BBC America... <laughs> If you go to their app, you can. Uh, there's also uh, stuff on there that you can watch as well. So uh, I think that's it. Uh, this is an hour and a half, which is longer than our normal episode of Star Trek. So uh, in taking notes, I tried to get a little more broader in my detailing of the episodes, especially since less of you have probably watched it. But at the same time, there were just these little things that kept happening, and I'm like, oh, that's worth talking about. So I have more notes than we'll probably hit when it comes to uh, actually talking about the show. 
But anyway, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So as always, we start off with the very familiar Doctor Who theme. This is your, like, favorite Doctor Who theme, I find out tonight. It's true. Of all the Doctor Who themes, I think the original series has the best Doctor Who theme. And part of it is, it's so strange. Baseline with this synthy thing on top, but the baseline is the thing that drives it. The synthy thing is just weird. Yeah. And one of the things that they were doing here, and I think it's the core of Doctor Who, is setting up the weirdness of it. Mm -hmm. We don't understand. It's confusing. This isn't melodic. It's not pleasant. You know, it's not catchy. It's just weird music. It's you know, we called in Philip Glass to write a you know. Write us a theme song. Here you go. On a theremin. <laughs> exactly. And then as the theme songs go on, I just think they lose the core of that weirdness. They just become music. Yeah. Well, I think that it, certainly once they get back to 2005, I think that's a lot more. The, you get back to more of the... Dum, you do. Dum, dum, da, dum, well, I think dum, da, dum, one of the benefits that they had, and Star Trek will have this as well, when you get a break... People get to sit back and reflect on what makes the thing the thing. Yeah. And they realize, we need to go back to the original theme. That's, that's what juice is. Yeah. And I think, you know, every time you have a new iteration of Star Trek, especially when it's been off for a while, people stop and think, well, what is Star Trek? Yeah. What kind of show do you want to do? And what's the theme like? Right. So there's always, you know, that going back to the, the original material, and every iteration then gets to be a bit of a reboot sense that they're going back to the core ideas and going, what is? Yeah. Well, so the Next Generation one, that was actually a motion picture, right? Music from the motion picture, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, we, we start off with this rocket in space, it's stock footage, blah, 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 and it's, uh, it's all this technical jargon they're throwing out around. Uh, as I mentioned to you, the astronauts in this scene are the same ones that would later be used as Bosk. So for those of you who know Star Wars very well and who Bosk is... This is the episode where that uh, uh, that uh, outfit comes from. Um, Although in Star Wars we can see it in color. That's true. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to this, which is of course very black and white. We don't even get black. Uh, we don't even get color Doctor Who until the seventies uh, with John Pertwee. Mm -hmm. But even that is in and out. Uh, the very first episode of John Pertwee is in color, but then they go to black and white for a while, and then it's in color. So, in the middle to late sixties everything really starts to become color. Mm -hmm. And the networks are competing with each other by saying, we're color, our color's good. It's why NBC has a peacock to advertise its colorful yeah. shows. But you would still get shows that were made on the cheap in black and white. Shows like Andy Griffith. Yeah. Um, now, toward the very end, they started making some of those in color. Just because by that point, everything on the network's got to be color. Yeah. But the early ones are black and white because there's but, no reason for them to be in color. It's not like we're going to be dazzled by. Yeah. The well, and I always felt right exactly, especially since it was built for black and white. But also, you know, it's like I always felt like once they went into color, that it was like it sort of missed the nostalgia mm -hmm. of, and maybe that's just my again, you know, coming from a different time, but the nostalgia of you know what Andy Griffith was. Mm -hmm. 
so in if you look at at when Britons got and one of the things that made it necessary to go to color in the late 60s was everybody was getting a color TV so many people had color there was no point in doing black and white anymore because everyone had a color set yeah in Britain that took a little longer yeah also too we get it with the next shot we get is some some other stock footage from very high you know is those shots of like the the South Pole so it's crazy because how hazy those were anyway then you imagine this being broadcast over the static you know, so you're getting more static on it. Um, you know, you only had, so we got 1080p now, right? Which means that there's like 10, uh, 1,080 lines on your screen. Well, can you imagine back in the day, you only had 403. Isn't that crazy? So that's a way different thing. So yeah, so that's why everything's always fuzzy whenever you watch anything that's uh, at all from the back then. Uh, so we get into the barracks. We find out that this is, and this is the first like connection to Star Trek that we have here besides space. Is that it's a international group of uh, space? Not I was going to say pirates. <laughs> I know I'm ridiculous. Space astronauts who uh, have all come together to do uh, to to blast off the ship ship into space. Um, and in that first episode, they really play up the international. Yeah. So like every person you meet is of a different nationality. Yeah. And you they'll go through the astronauts in an almost roll call. Of the internationalism, so you'll have uh, uh, you know Zeus Four come in and it's one accent. Zeus Four here reading you loud and clear. It's another accent. Yeah. Then he talks to the guy next to him. You got those readings? Yeah, I got the readings. Another accent. Yeah. You cut to somebody else. You know, scopes. You know, showing them clearly. Another accent. Yeah. And it's like they're just showing, just like with the bridge on the Enterprise. This yeah. International cooperation. As the episode goes on. They run out of international actors, and the only characters left are all British. Weird. That's so weird. It's like it's a British show or something. That's right. Yeah. Well, and they no longer had the pretense. Like, why bother? Who cares? Yeah. Well, you did have, like, the, 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 the Indian guy who was the chancellor of Space Central or wherever they are. Um, and so and the, the lead character's an American on the space. Yeah, the that's general. true. The general, yes. But I think part of the reason he was an American... And he had that kind of Texas accent, is because they wanted him to be the, the, you know, like the pilot from uh, Doctor Strangelove. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Well, and certainly too. I mean, what happens later with with the general? You know, him kind of losing it, and you know, we've got to blow him up, and blah blah blah. I think that's also a very. I could see that being a, an English version of looking at what an American is like, you know. Uh, and I think to this day on Doctor Who, they still continue to use Americans for that kind of stuff. It's pretty funny. Uh, so out into the Antarctica snow, we see the uh, the a very obvious model of the TARDIS uh, arriving. The companions here who are uh, Polly and Ben, you know, they've been having a good time running through the wardrobes in the TARDIS. This, too, has just been a running joke over the 50 years of like, oh, my God, you can't believe the clothes he's got back there. It's amazing. <laughs> So uh, they come out of the TARDIS. They're immediately captured. They're taken down. The CE is sent. The CO is sent for because it's like they can't handle it on their own. Uh, and one of the this is the first time in this episode you really get a sense of how long we'll wait for things to happen. Yeah. In which exiting from the base took like I don't know seven or eight seconds. Yeah. And it looks clumsy. And you're like, you know, if 
the doctrine is people have been armed, you'd all be dead. They'd have taken them right out. Because it's like you're crawling out of a hole, and then you get up, and then you stand up, and then you pull out your gun, and then you're like, oh, we're taking you prisoner. Like, <laughs> great. And, you know, of course, with editing, you can just make that look like, yeah. oh, those guys just popped out of that hole, yeah. ready to go. But now we're going to watch them crawl out and stand. And... Yep, ridiculous. So they call for the CEO. The general magically appears in the doorway. We don't even know why he's down there. He comes down there. He sort of half-heartedly questions them and is like, I don't have time for you. Let's take it. Uh, we'll take him upstairs and we'll talk to him later. Uh, and again, without any reason for ever having come down there in the first place. They get up. They get up to the main room now, which is like this big radar room that's supposed to look something like out of like, you know, Houston's Kennedy Space Center or something. Um, we find out we're in 1986. And they, uh, they just got somebody to the moon, so good for them. <laughs> Very much underestimating where uh, the space race was going to lead everybody. Uh, the astronauts in space are acting like this to show like no gravity. Very slowly. It's very hard to move in space. So that's happening. Uh, we find out that Mars is out of position, but you know what? No! Mars isn't out of position. There is a tenth planet that has magically appeared somewhere between Mars and Venus. Uh-oh, let's pull out the retinoscope, and we'll <laughs> take a better look at it. So uh, suddenly we find out the astronauts are in jeopardy. Something is sucking the power out of, their, uh, out of their ship. They've only got one orbit left, although that orbit takes forever. They've only got one orbit left to get them back down to the planet. Uh-oh, uh-oh, what is going to happen? Uh, they don't know what it is, but the doctor does. He hands the general a note, but of course nobody listens to him, and suddenly ha without even thinking, puts the note in their back pocket. Uh, still in trouble, they attempt to correct the ship. Uh, this section is actually a little bit tense, but certainly lacking in effects. So, like, you know, if you actually saw the ship maybe tumbling in space, that might be a little bit better. Yeah, but it was really done in a very almost no-effects way. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's more like a 50s drama in which it was all talk mm -hmm. and talking about things rather than it was, in a sense, all talk, no show. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, imagine if their budget's smaller than what, you know, Star Trek has, and we've seen what's happened on Star Trek, so that's crazy. We find out, too, that the new planet's gravity has been affecting the ship and causing it to tumble. I, I, I did question why the new planet that appears next to the Earth isn't affecting the Earth as well, changing tides or something. Something should be happening, but uh, they don't mention that at all. Uh, they now have a camera on the new planet, and it appears to be a, much like Star Trek, a cloudless version of Earth. So it's funny, because we were just talking about... Uh... It's merely upside down. Yes. And no one can recognize it. They're all like, it's familiar, <coughs> but I can't put my finger on it. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about Miri, and they do that thing in Miri where it's a parallel Earth for some reason. We don't know, but uh, so it's kind of the same thing here. It's funny. And again, cloudless, like most of the planets that were on uh, Star Trek at the time. So then the scientist takes the note out of his pocket and realizes, oh, that's exactly what the doctor has written. How did he know all this? But of course, before the doctor has even time to exp his exp start his explanation, which, by the way, is ridiculous, saying that the Earth had a twin at some point in the solar system, but then it disappeared. Uh, it wandered off. It wandered off, yes. The uh, Secretary of Space Command shows up, and like I said, he's Indian. And in Space Command, we also see a, uh, a an African of some sort. Mm -hmm. He's in the you know traditional 
African gown. We see a, a, a lady who's probably German or something. I don't know. We got more multiculturalism is happening at Space Central. And we really know it by the costumes in this case, not the accent. Yes. Because these are not speaking parts. Yeah, well, they can't pay. They can afford that. Come on. <laughs> we can have these people. They just can't talk. But we can have the costumes. We can pay for the costumes. No, yeah, true. Well, that's probably in you know the BBC wardrobe somewhere. So meanwhile, we see a spacecraft land in Antarctica. Oh my gosh, it's so clearly a model, but I love it. It looks so good. Um, it does look fun. Yes. And it takes forever. <laughs> it is. It's like... <laughs> well, let's just take our time. Killing precious moments here. So security guards from the, the Space Central place in the South Pole enter or try to get into the TARDIS. Of course they can't because the TARDIS is impregnable, but they don't know that. And while they're trying to get in there, Cybermen show up. Oh my gosh, it's these silver soldier robotic people. And they try to shoot them, but of course the bullets, the bullets do no good. As the last man is killed, we see a sort of silverish kind of real person's man hands. Uh, touch one of the dead bodies, and as the camera pans up, there is a stocking face Cyberman. Dun dun dun. We hit credits, 22 minutes. Episode 2 starts. The doctor tries to tell the, the general that he's going to have visitors from outer space, but the general calls it all poppycock and leaves the doctor. The science scientist, Barkley, and the general work some more to uh, get, the, get the ship in space down safely. But meanwhile, the Cybermen donned the soldiers' cold gear for some reason. I don't know well, why. I think they just they were wearing disguises. Yeah, I guess so. Because then they come down into the control room. <laughs> they make it all the way there with nobody, nobody stopping. Nobody notices them. Yeah, silver men who are way tall. <laughs> but they have the cold gear on, so they're totally our guys. That's right. And at one point, the general is like, You there! Come on, I, I'm giving you, I an, gave order. you an order. Sergeant! And then he runs up, and then they, they all throw off their cloaks. It's like, what? Whoa, my gosh. We've infiltrated. Uh, meanwhile, we get a news report with the first pictures of our neighbor in space. And again, it's this upside-down <laughs> globe with no... And it's weird because it looks like the, the continents are darker than the ocean. So then I'm like, is it really that opposite? Like the oceans are shaped like Australia or whatever? It's crazy. Uh, they tell us... But they do tell us... Um, don't worry, there is nothing to be concerned about. Everything is fine. I don't know about you, Ken, but if we're if a new planet has entered the atmosphere, I'm finding somebody with like a fallout shelter, and I'm going underground. I'll see you all in a few years. Or I'm dying really quickly. That's the other thing that could probably happen. The Cybermen now have entered the base. We get the thing with the general. The Cybermen who talk creepily by opening their mouths, but they don't move their lips. And then somebody off screen is doing all the talking. In that weird, you know, it, it kind of sounds like machine language. You know, I got a call today from a robocaller. Yeah. And robocallers are so good these days. The only way I have to test if it's a robocaller is to say nonsensical things to them and see if they... Because, you know, like, uh, hi, I'm calling from the uh, Armin's, you know, relief fund. Uh, would you like to contribute today? You know, so you say something like, rainbows. And if they go, so how much can I put you down for? <laughs> you talk to a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. like, excuse me? <laughs> it's a person. Exactly. they're really good. But the Cybermen apparently are still, you know, their inflections are weird. Yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, they're up and down, and uh, they sound like, like someone's idea of machine language. We do not 
care. We are Cybermen. All of our emotions have been taken away. <laughs> exactly. As yeah. opposed to these robocallers who are so good, you're like, I had no idea. You know, you gotta, you gotta quiz them. Exactly. If you ask if they're robots, they say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Polly, uh, so Polly, which is the doctor's companion, asks uh, the Cybermen, like, don't you care if our people in space die? To which she said, do you not care about them? And the Cybermen are like, people on your planet die all the time. You do not care about them. And you're like, wow, ouch, jeez. Jeez, <laughs> Cybermen, you're awful. So uh, we find out that they're from the uh, planet Mondas, which is apparently an old term for Earth or something. I don't know. I looked it up. That's not true. In fact, the first two pages of Google, are whenever you mention Mondas, all they mention are Cybermen. So... <laughs> Although there is a band, there is a band, and their name is Mon Das. So, that's something. Uh, also, in uh, the last few episodes of the Capaldi season, or they meet the Cybermen, but they're the Mondasians, the Cybermen. So they've got the weird stocking face and everything on them. It's really cool. So we find out about the Cybermen that they have uh, they have uh, gotten rid of emotions, as we have found out already. But that uh, Mondas was a planet that used to be next to Earth that flew away to find the end of the end of space. Is that what he says? <laughs> to find the end of space, and now they have come back because they're out of power. Well, they're out of power, but we don't know that yet. But yes, that is true. They're out of power. Also, too, we have found out that the Cybermen have come become Cybermen. Because uh, they felt that the, the the human body was too fragile, and this is the way that they could make themselves last forever. It's a, it's a singularity problem. Yeah. Apparently, the population control isn't a problem with them either. Although, I guess if they're not reproducing, then what does it even matter? The general flips the switch and lets Geneva know that there's an emergency happening here. Uh-oh. The American general is super excited about it, and he's like, Ha-ha, what are you going to do now? And the Cyberman looks at him and says, That was... Really, most unfortunate that you should not have done that. <laughs> Cyberman asks the general to tell Geneva that everything's fine. Geneva, uh, the general's response is, go take a jump. <laughs> All right, you are some cool general, let me tell you that. So uh, the general is knocked out, so they leave it to the British scientist Barkley to uh, tell everybody that, uh, hey, uh, Geneva, everything's fine. We're all fine here now. How are you? <laughs> uh, He's got a small radiation leak. Had to lock it down. <laughs> had to lock it down. He does actually say. <laughs> yeah, there was a radiation leak. We that had was... to take the reactor offline earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. <laughs> so funny. Uh, we see the Cybermen's guns. They're like, like I said, they're like an old like window, in-window fan. Uh -huh. They're like this big with a circle in the middle. Which turned out to be a lamp. Uh, yep. So it's basically... We run down to the hardware store, we get some, some nice big outdoor light bulbs, we install them in our ceiling, in our uh, in this wall fan, yep. and that's our weapon. That's our weapon. Weapons for about $5 and some labor. So uh, meanwhile, Ben tries to escape, uh, but the Cybermen immediately catch him, they take his gun. What kind of gun was it? The Oh, he had a, he had a Sterling. Yeah, a Sterling. And so uh, the guy takes it and just uh, bends it in half. Boom. So then uh, they take Ben and they lock him up. But they say, like, it's too bad you're not taking us seriously. And I'm thinking, why would you point a sterling at something you're not taking seriously? That's right, exactly. So I've noticed that one problem that aliens have a lot with humans is that they don't know where to lock them up 
you yeah. know purpose yeah. so much like that they put ben in this room with a with a movie projector what could he possibly do with a movie projector well he uh calls in the cyberman who's got him on guard the cyberman walks in he turns on the movie projector so that it blinds the cyberman and he steals his gun oh no so the cyberman then starts walking towards him arr, 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 arr. And uh, Ben's telling him to back off, but he won't listen. So the Cyberman goes to attack him, and Ben has to kill the Cyberman. He feels really bad with about it. With his own lamp. With his, yeah, with the Cyberman's own lamp. And it's great, because what they do for a special effects is basically just put the camera on the lamp. Yep. And let the lamp kind of you know, light up light up and overflood the... Uh... Yeah, the lens. Yeah. Uh, so now the Cyberman tells us that uh, Mondas is back because they were out of energy. And, uh, and so if you're out of energy, the, the last thing you want to do is start moving a planet around. Yeah, exactly. Or go back to the, your sister planet, who could be in the same problem. Uh, but it's going to steal all the energy from Earth. Uh, but don't worry, the people of Earth will not die. They will be turned into Cyberman. So it's really great here because for people who know Doctor Who, and uh, especially for those who don't, the, that's always the Cyberman's goal, is to try and turn everybody in the in the cosmos into cybermen because they feel like they are the epitome of what a being should be so why not turn everybody into that so at this point perhaps we should mention that the cybermen are basically the borg <laughs> yeah yeah there you go they're basically the borg good call ben then shows back up in the map room and the general just happens to wake up at the same time and together they take out all of the cybermen in the uh in the map room or the radar room uh, so then the general calls Geneva to catch them up, let them know what's happened. He tells them about the Cybermen. They then tell, uh, then Geneva tells Cutler that they must, uh, uh, they just sent up another rocket to shoot the Cybermen down? No, it wasn't that. It was to, to, to rescue the... To Astra. rescue the other ship. Uh, yeah, that's it. But we need the bravest men, so we call for volunteers, and your son is aboard. Yes. Eye roll. <laughs> Big eye roll. <laughs> But uh, the new planet now has arrived in the solar system near Earth, and uh, they sent up that ship with the new planet coming in. That was a really great idea. <laughs> uh, the general then rolls out a big security patrol, and uh, they spend a good time on it. They spend a lot of time calling out uh, all those people. Yeah, it was very thorough about where people would go and what they would be doing. So big eye roll, because, you know, now we're just... Well, one situation's taken care of, and now another one uh, that's a big disaster is happening. Because this is a mission control, yeah. and if there aren't astronauts in space, we've basically just gone to the South Pole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and then we find out that there's a whole group in formation of cyber ships on their way to Earth. Dun, dun, dun. X's, O's, N's, and Z's. <laughs> that's right. To credits. <laughs> Episode 3 starts right where we left off. Many spacecraft appear on the radar. The Doctor then faints. Now, here's why the Doctor faints. And he's not even in this episode. You know why? Because in real life, William Hartnell got bronchitis. Oh, no. So, yeah, he was out this whole week. Uh, they couldn't, uh, they, obviously, they couldn't rehearse with him. And, obviously, they couldn't shoot with him. So, what they did is they kind of just gave Ben and Polly all of his lines. And so, that's why, like, Ben, especially in this episode, is super, like, all over the place trying to do whatever he can to stop them because... He's taking the doctor's job, basically. So, But it makes sense because he's a, a Royal Navy guy. Yeah. And he's acting like a soldier would. Oh, we got to escape. He's, in a way, he's like the general. We yeah. got to fight them. We got to do stuff. Uh, well, and it's also interesting, too, because... 
So knowing what happens at the end of this episode with the big first ever regeneration of a doctor, it also plays into that, right? Because he says at the beginning of the next episode, this whole body of mine's wearing thin. So it's really nice the way like this, even still this works because mm -hmm. of that. So again, the general then lays out the three problems, just in case you missed last week's episode. His son is in space, the Cybermen are on their way, and the Earth is being drained of all the energy from whatever this planet's name is. Oh yeah, it's Mondas. The general then decides he's going to blow up Mondas with a Z-bomb! What's a Z-bomb, you might ask? Well, it's their doomsday weapon. Dun-dun-dun, because it's 1986, so we, we got a brand new one. And so uh, he calls Geneva when the energy drain starts getting worse. And he asks uh, the head of the uh, Geneva, he's like, hey, is it cool if I sh shoot this bomb at them? And Geneva says, no. And he's like, okay, well, is it cool if I take any action to stop the Cybermen? And they say yes. So he says, great, start the countdown for the Z-bomb. <laughs> and the objection to the Z-bomb is like, we don't know what effect it will have. We don't, yes, we don't know. Because we don't exactly know how the Z-bomb works. <laughs> exactly. <I'm> <coughs> What kind of bomb have we designed? We, we can't use it until we figure out how it works. Right, exactly. But we built it. <laughs> well, they worry later that it might turn into a, 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 a supernova. That could happen. Or the radiation from the explosion of we'll Mondas. Will fry the Earth. Will fry the Earth and there'll be no visitation. But the general says, we're going to do it anyway. That's just crazy. And nobody comes up with, we could blow the Earth planet to bits and, and like... <coughs> the debris will rain down on the earth. Yeah. No one mentioned that one. No, exactly. I yeah. thought that was the obvious one. Right, because we all... Have you read, like, the real-life articles of what would happen to Endor after the, the Death Star blows yeah. up? It's like, they're like, it would survive. <laughs> That's right. we got to relocate those Ewoks now. <laughs> There's not going to be dancing at a party. Yeah, no. It's going to be a huge uh, effort to get them away. So then Ben says, well, you know, uh, Mondas is in trouble too. The doctor said that we should wait because if we wait, the planet could fry itself because it's absorbing too much energy and it's going to eventually blow up anyway. Well, no, no, the, the, the general won't listen to this. He thinks that's too crazy. So, well, it doesn't uh, make no sense. Why would the Cybermen absorb too much energy? Yes, exactly. Why would they only take what they need? <laughs> Agreed, but that's what's happening anyway. Uh, <laughs> so they uh, take Ben away because he's been talking too much and they put him into the room with the doctor. He tries to lock, but no luck. He can't get out. And you know what he says? Oh, well, they didn't have locks like this in 1966. <laughs> Scene of the general then uh, trying to, like, basically rationalize what he's doing down there in the missile silo. Barkley is trying to get the sun on the come. Then Polly tries to talk to Barkley, like, convincing him to, like, hey, we got to wait. You know, this bomb thing's a really bad idea. Polly takes Barkley to Ben. They come up with a plan to sneak through the vents because, hey, you know what? He helped build part of this. What kind, I don't of know what kind of scientist this guy is? He's like he's half like architect apparently. He, well, he's part architect, <laughs> part rocket scientist, yep. part bomb guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a trope in okay. which, like, once you are good at science, you're good at all the sciences. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> And this guy's got that. He's playing that deck. Yeah, he's, he's got stuck all that. in that trope. I'm surprised he didn't do any, any biology or anthropology while we were... So while they're coming up with the plan, the Cybermen now arrive, but the soldiers now are, are hiding in a trap, and they kill almost all the Cybermen outside, and then they take all their guns. Ben arrives. He's in the missile silo, hiding completely in plain sight inside a vent. Uh, you can totally see him, and there's a guy who walks by him who totally sees him, but didn't. Back into mission control... 
the general calls for Barkley, but realizes he's not there and thinks, ah, he's probably trying to sabotage the mission. So he goes down to the Michelin silo. He, uh, well, he finds him doing real work. You know, he's like, you know, checking on data for the thing. It's yeah. like real work. And the other scientists are like, oh, yes, uh, uh, number 12 on, on this and uh, radio, you know, 45 on this. And he's like, you, you're sabotaging the mission. <laughs> Yeah, and if, and then he's Barkley can't even like lie about it. He's like, I um uh well er. <laughs> so you're like, as okay. opposed to like, uh, you know, just getting the telemetry readings right. Yeah, exactly. So the general rushes in there and he sees Ben at work inside this little thing trying to do some sabotage, and he pulls and him like, off. He ninjas his way into this room. <laughs> it's sure not does. Like, you know, it's not like he enters and the guy like comes out of this little thing and like, oh no, I've been caught. Instead, he just like walks right up to him and, and grabs him and throws him off the platform. Yeah, yeah, throws him off the guy. He goes over the bar and uh, he is knocked out, man. This guy's definitely got a concussion for he, sure. He's messed up. Yeah. They're back in mission control. They start the countdown for the to, for the thing to go off, and it's literally forty seconds of sweaty guys. You know, is, a couple yeah. of guys pulling on their ties. That's uh, all it is. their heads. Oh, oh, it's gonna. It's so crazy. We're gonna here. see all the extras act like they're got yeah. flop sweat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and tension's supposed to be mounting here, but you're like, what are we even watching? I don't even know what these what these people are doing. So credits roll as we see the ignition come out of the bottom of the rocket missile. End of episode three. Beginning of episode four. Now. But oh my goodness. What happened to episode four? That's right. That's what I'm about to say. So there are millions, not millions, there are many episodes of Doctor Who that are missing because the BBC and all their, and all their great thinking and penny pinching decided, oh, well, we can tape over some of this stuff. That's fine. So they taped over many, many episodes. Like all of 1967. Yeah. One of the reasons I chose this episode is because it's one of the few episodes that actually still exists in some form. Uh, the two episodes before this, The Savages, doesn't exist. All of Patrick Troughton's first season, all gone. But, clever thing, one of the things that they did find is that many kids, much like me, cassette taped recorded episodes because, of course, this is before the advent of VCR kids or DVRs. Uh, so they actually, on audio cassette, recorded these episodes. So they have these audio recordings of a lot of these episodes. So what they originally did in the VHS release thing, which uh, VHS release, which I showed you, was that they did uh, they had pictures that were taken from the film cells that uh, directors could ask for to be like used as part of their resume to see like hey I shot this I did this blah 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 so what they did is that they used the audio recording and then showed these pictures throughout the episode on the VHS version while also having snippets of the episode that were kinescope uh, which we watched in fact that luckily they had the actual regeneration from uh, Patrick or from Hartnell into into Troughton uh, via kinescope. So that's actually something you can see. Now, what's even more interesting is that the next episode, Power of the Daleks, which is actually Troughton's first episode, they actually have an entire audio recording of it, as they did with episode four here, complete animated episode of all four episodes of Power of the Daleks. And it was funny when they showed it on BBC America. It was in black and white, much like this episode is in black and white. But if you buy the DVD, you can watch it in color. So, 
That's how they got you to buy the DVD there. Oh, so they, they've got all these stills. Yep. And they've got the script so they can read the directions. Right. And, of course, in, in the case of this episode, <coughs> two of three episodes in which you get to see everybody and where they're running around. Right. So ep the animation for this episode four is just basically animating stuff that we've seen already. We, we know what the general looks like. Yep. We know what all the scientists look like. We even know what all the extras look like, and they get animated, too. <laughs> yeah. So... They're not having to like work from nothing, from nothing, and just yeah. like what do we draw? Yeah. Instead, they've got stage directions, they've got stills, and, and basically got... even like essentially storyboards thanks to those yeah. photos. So yeah, and you were even saying you think some of the special effects are better. Oh, I did. I thought episode four special effects one was way better. So in and this is animated. The the first episodes basically have no special effects. We've got this terrain which is made out of paper mache or or plaster or something. Yep. They they obviously throw a little dry ice on it to make it foggy, and then you know we watch this thing get dropped down on some some wire. Yeah. That's it. And then we flash lights at the camera for weapons. Yeah. There's no special effects. And in the even, so you're watching these radio communications of a ship that's losing power, but it looks like great video. Yeah. Up to the moment, I mean, when we're talking to each other. You know, today with the internet, we don't get that kind of extra yeah. perception. You know, we get some jittery, you know, video yeah. and stuff like that. But they're getting great video now. In the animation, we're getting static, and he's getting you know, you know lines, lines, and you know, there's all kinds of interference. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this is this is better special effects right away. <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't blast off. They call blast off, but it doesn't blast off. Suddenly, whatever sabotage Ben and uh, Barkley were trying to work on, which was to, you know, lose fuel, like, right at the moment of blastoff, uh, totally works. And, and Polly yells, we have a chance at life. I'm like, what are you talking about here? So the general yells at them, is like, uh, you know, and go get that doctor guy, wake him up. Well, the doctor then magically appears. Happy, right, yeah. That's right. Happy that the doctor didn't, or that the rocket didn't blast off. Uh, Polly sort of asks what happened to him, and here's the moment where he says this whole body of mine seems to be wearing thin. Even in the the, the Peter Capaldi episode, that where they the Twice Upon a Time, where they bring back Hartnell, they even show that clip just to like really emphasize the point that the Doctor's old body is happening. Uh, then the general here takes his gun and he points it in Barkley's face. You know, he says, uh, you gotta get that rocket going. But Barkley says, uh, it's gonna take too long to refuel. You're not gonna have enough time. Ha ha ha. Well, it was sabotaged with your help. You're going to kill my son, basically, the, uh, the general's yelling. Again, threatens him with the gun. Uh, and then we see the Cybermen ship uh, descend again. But in now, the exact same place that the previous ship had descended. Yes, exactly. Where is it gone? Where did the other <laughs> ship go? Uh, we don't even know. I think they're reusing the same footage. <laughs> Very possibly. <laughs> The general's son then calls again, saying he's losing power and that Mondas has started acting weird. But this is it. That's all it takes. The general has now gone and lost it. He doesn't care about the reports of more ships landing down or anything else. He said his son is going to be killed and that uh, he's going to kill Ben now to get the revenge of it because Ben was the one who did the sabotage. Meanwhile, Ben earlier was like sweating up a storm. Polly's like got ice on his head. He doesn't remember anything that's happened. This poor kid's got a concussion. Oh, he's Nobody up. cares. Nobody cares. Uh, but now he seems to be fine all of a sudden. Uh, but luckily, the Cybermen arrive at the last minute. The general turns and tries to shoot him and uh, they kill him instead. So that's the end of the general. 
But then the doctor, interestingly enough, as I said, he's a different take on the doctor here as the old man, says, we owe you our lives. This man was about to kill us. And then uh, the Cybermen say, we do not care. We are going to kill you still. And uh, Ben then mentions like, geez, we save his planet. I don't know. Uh, he's not even going to give us anything. And the, the Cybermen are like, what do you mean? Save our planet. There was a big rocket. You know, that was going, you were going to shoot at our planet. So uh, the doctor then spins it and is like, no, we're, uh, we, we just stopped them from shooting the thing at you. Uh, you know, you could just come here on Earth and live. You don't have to be sucking all the you know, energy from us. Uh, the cybers then decide they're going to confer, but they say, hey, we can't talk with this thing being pointed at us. Why don't you go disarm the, uh, the, the, the bomb? Rocket, yeah. yeah, the rocket. So uh, they agree to it. But uh, Ben here keeps trying to give away the plan. He's like, oh, I see, Doc. You're just buying time so that Mondas can blow up. And the doctor's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shush, shush, shush. Uh, it's a very clever trick, though. I think that is a very doctorish thing to do, you know, to, oh, I've come up with a plan that's going to trick the Cybermen. However, the Cybermen already know uh, what he's planning because uh, they're like, the, we're, we're not going to let Mondas burn. We're going to blow you up instead. So they decide they're going to, they're going to, what they, uh, the whole plan was is that they were going to disarm the, have them disarm the rocket, put it on the planet, and then blow up the planet from within. Well, apparently they knew how the, how the Z-bomb worked. Exactly. And they were not afraid of the radiation or the potential chance. Yeah, or fallout. <laughs> or that we would be <coughs> supernova. Yeah, exactly. So Ben now, being a smart cookie as he has been, says, uh, you know what? We, uh, we're not going to let them in here. There must be a reason they're not in here with us. It must be the radiation. So we're going to use the radiation against them. They test it. They it's, open the door. The guy falls down. That's right. And then they're like, well, do we have the radioactive? Well, the reactor's right here. That's right. We can use these, uh, the, the cores from this thing. Meanwhile, the doctor then uh, calls stalemate. Ha-ha, you can't get in there. You're not going to be able to get to the bomb. You're screwed. So then they take him aboard. The, they take the doctor aboard the uh, Cyberman spaceship. Now, if this were David Tennant or Matt Smith, I'd be like, well, this is exactly where the doctor wants to be, you know? Two spins of his little... Uh, his uh, sonic screwdriver, and boom! Taken care of, but not in this case. No, folks. Nope. The old man's losing it. Uh, they, they take him in, and they, they shackle him up, and he basically falls asleep. Or gets a relapse of the bronchitis. It's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. On the ship, uh, then, we see the doctor and Polly, and uh, we hear this, like, thrumming noise is getting louder and louder and louder. And so uh, the doctor, in a very caring and loving way to Polly, says... Uh, I don't know. I think the spacecraft is absorbing too much energy and might blow up. <laughs> so then she starts to panic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he falls back asleep. And then he falls back asleep. So there we go. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see a, a graphic of Mondas. It's uh, nearing its saturation point. Um, I don't know why they just didn't get on the planet here and fly away. Why not? You got all the energy you need. You don't need to suck anymore. Maybe they just didn't like the idea of the human surviving or something. But uh, then uh, Ben and Barkley, using rods from the nuclear uh, nuclear energy thing, uh, head out of the silo. As the Cybermen approach, Ben tries to get them to come in, but the Cybermen then try to use gas to get them out. Finally, Dyson and the other guys show up, and with the uh, radiation and the help of their uh, their own guns, they kill the Cybermen. 
Ben then tries to uh, turn on the communications device to try and lure the Cybermen off of the ship so he can save the Doctor and Polly. To which the other guys are like, isn't that going to bring all the Cybermen here? <laughs> and uh, Ben's like, well, that's just a chance we're going to have to take. So, uh, but the Cybermen show up anyway. Oh my gosh. But it's too late because then Mondas starts to break up and fall apart and shatter. It's like Krypton at the beginning of the Superman movie. It Pieces of it blow up and fly everywhere. But then the Cybermen do the same because and that's where they're getting their energy. It breaks apart like it's made out of clay. Yeah. Right? So it, there's no molten core. <laughs> and apparently gravity stops working on the planet because the pieces just come apart. It doesn't explode. Yeah. It just comes apart. That's right. So. Uh, then Cutler's son calls down. They don't tell him about the uh, his father yet. Uh, but he says, uh, "Don't worry. Uh, on your next orbit, we're gonna get you. We're gonna get you ready for your splashdown." So in 1986, they haven't perfected the technology yet to land the spaceship, like a space shuttle or something. That's right. But instead, they're still doing splashdowns. We also call Space Central and find out that the Cyberman menace has finished all over the world. There is no more going on. They all disintegrated. That's right. They all disintegrated. So Ben then runs aboard the Cyberman ship, which is still there and working and hasn't blown up. Ben says, uh, don't worry, Doc, it's all over. But then the Doctor Who says, no, it's it's not all over. It's far from being all over, he says. I must get back to the TARDIS immediately. And the Doctor doctor shuffles off the ship. We cut. they all get dressed. They're all putting their coats on. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. another 20 seconds of like... <laughs> What's happening here? People put their coats on. We cut to the outside of the TARDIS. Ben and Polly can't get in, but the Doctor, with his last bit of energy opens the door and then falls and then there we see uh, the wah, 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 transition between uh, Hartnell and Troughton as our first regeneration happens on Doctor Who easy trick they just had two cameras one that had um, uh, Patrick Troughton laying against a white background and one of William Hartnell lying against the floor and they just uh, you know slowly brought up one then brought in the other and then turned down one and then that was basically it. It was that easy. Mm -hmm. That easy for a special effects. Now, for those of you who do keep track of Doctor Who, there was another adventure that happens with William Hartnell between these moments where he leaves the cyber ship and then ends up back in the TARDIS. Uh, revigored with the energy of a regeneration, he follows Peter Capaldi on one last mission, which is uh, really fun, and that happens in Twice Upon a Time. Season 10 or 9 of the new series? I've lost track. Anyway, really good episode. So that's it. That's Doctor Who. As we see, there are similarities. You know, we they talk about the Z-bomb in such a way that, you know, it's like nuclear war and how bad it is. We get that storyline going on as well, which I think is also very Trek-like. We get a couple episodes where they discuss bombs and why they're bad. Um, you know, space, obviously, and as we said with the interculturalism that happens in Space Central here, not to mention Space Central, which was once called... Right. You know, once used as well as for Starfleet, so... We also kind of get the idea of the present as the future. Yes. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure when it is. Uh, probably... <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a movie with Hal. Oh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. You know, it's, it's around there, I think, that we start to get this futuristic looking future yeah in which the future isn't the present with better lines <laughs> it looks like the future yeah 
It looks like stuff we don't have. It looks like a different... We get the 70s, which is all jumpsuits. Yep. People not walking around in jumpsuits. It begins to, the future begins to look different. And I think that's one of the things that makes the you know, current Star Trek, like Discovery, but even uh, everything from Next Generation on, yeah, look different than the original series. That it doesn't feel like you know, buttons and knobs. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not current technology. They had iPads before we had iPads. Right. And the, the computer is like <laughs> imagined to be super amazing. Yeah. Not just a voice that does not compute. Yes, does not compute. Very true. Well, that was our walk through uh, this episode of Doctor Who. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're really going to be hitting some fun. We're going to be doing Thunderball, right? Mm -hmm. Thunderball. James Bond. James Bond, another big icon of the 60s. So we definitely wanted to talk about that as well. So next week, join us for some James Bond. It's going to be fun. Don't worry. We're getting to season two. It's on its way. I promise. Well, with that, I'm saying goodbye. My name is Matt. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go, and we will see you all next week.